Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at the Farm Podcast. That is the Farm Podcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. Okay, today's guest is making their first appearance on the farm, though we are old friends. They are the most badass therapist on the planet and a TikTok personality. Folks, I give you guys the host of TikTok's Pierce Therapy, L.S. Pierce. Thank you so much for dropping by tonight, friend. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. For today's show, I wanted to get into Pierce's unique perspective, given her extensive history in the mental health field, coupled with how her identity shapes that perspective. These are important subjects, ones that are undoubtedly beyond the pale to serious discussion in much of society today, or really in most of human history for that matter, but that's another topic. Anyway, we're going to go there and beyond. How do identity, the national security state, and especially capitalism affect these things. If mental health is an uncomfortable subject, it is even more so within the context of late stage capitalism. And how does this affect the LGBTQ community or people of color or women or even men? And how did COVID and the ensuing isolation exasperate the problem? And we're also going to get into Pierce's adventures in TikTok land, corporate exploitation, and even one of our favorite subjects around these parts, Mr. Elon Musk. And hey, we'll even wrap up with some musings on the collapse of America. It's going to be a fantastic show. And we will hopefully even end with some practical advice for all of you out there in podcast land. So on that note, let us get going. It's all right, Pierce. We know each other well, but my listeners are not familiar with you. So I thought touching on your background briefly in mental health would be a good way to introduce you. It's also highly relevant to our topic. So let's have at it. Cool. Yeah. Well, um, forgive the noise of my dog loudly drinking water behind me. Um, my name is Pierce. I go by my last name, Pierce. My dog's name is Jackson. Um, I have been working in uh, mental health and social services in uh, different ways for about 15 years now. Um, I lived in Seattle in the uh, 2000s, and I was working in a homeless shelter there for people dealing with mental health issues and drug addiction, and then later in supportive housing for people that were dealing with um, mental health issues um, like drug addiction and also HIV. Um, after that, I worked in a program for kids for a while who had been re removed by, uh, removed from the home by CPS and, uh, couldn't actually ne like necessarily go into foster care or be adopted, um, due to, uh, behaviors that were too extreme. So like, um, you know, stealing cars or setting fires or, um, you know, demonstrating sexuality that was developmentally inappropriate for kids of that age. Um, the type of stuff that, you know, will typically happen with abuse. Um, and for a while, I worked in a residential program for people with schizophrenia. 
Um, and also when I was finishing my master's degree um, in social work in 2019, I was doing uh, assessments and therapy for adolescents. Um, after graduating, I worked for almost a year as a substance abuse counselor um, here in Long Beach, where I live now. And uh, until I really kind of found my footing as a private practice therapist. Um, so basically, that is to say that I have seen a lot, uh, lots of different aspects of mental health from children to the elderly, gay, straight, across all races, backgrounds, etc. Um, and currently also, in addition to being a private practice therapist, I do do some uh, like side work doing anti-racism type um, workshops and like consulting for diversity and inclusion initiatives for uh, businesses and things like that. So that is my professional background. But since your listeners can't see me, I should probably also include that my identity in, in terms of putting this conversation in context is that I am biracial, um, black and white, and I am a gender nonconforming lesbian. And I'm also pretty open about my perspective as a leftist, and I practice therapy from an anti-racist and anti-capitalist lens, or what in the field would be called liberation psychology. Fantastic. All right, so with that in mind, can you get into the state of how we treat mental health in this country? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, basically we just don't um, treat mental health in this country. Um, because mental health, mental wellness, um, things like that benefit uh, people, individual people and their lives and their relationships and their families, their communities and so forth. And enriching people's lives isn't necessarily in the service of the ruling class um, unless they can make money off of it. Um, which is to say, you know, the way that we treat it is we basically have a multi-billion dollar self-help industry um, and psychiatric pharmaceutical industry to medicate away these like emotions that we would like to dub problematic. Um, but, uh, nobody really learns how to regulate their emotions. Like in school, it's not something that's taught. It's not something that's often taught in families. Um, people aren't necessarily taught how to have healthy relationships with themselves, how to have healthy self-esteem, um, how to have healthy relationships with others, or even how to like figure out who they are as individuals and how to like be that person and live up to their full potential. Um, but I think that a lot of the things that we do perpetuate in society, uh, actively go against wellness. So, uh, for example, things like hierarchy, um, isolation, um, you know, bootstrap mentality, um, which takes people out of being in interdependent relationships with one another. You know, everybody kind of has this idea that we have to do everything all on our own. Um, and, uh, actually Johan Hari actually wrote a, a really good book about this called lost connections, um, about like some of the secret causes of depression. And, you know, some of those things are like, you know, hierarchies, like lack of agency in your own life causes depression. Uh, not, not really a big surprise there. Um, or, you know, disconnection from others, things like that. Um, so also because we're such an individualistic society, um, we tend to put all the onus on the individual rather than the society itself. And that can have people feeling really broken and kind of blaming ourselves for what are, you know, pretty much systemic problems. Um, so, you know, we're all under stress from just like living everyday life, just trying to survive under capitalism. So, you know, for most of us, life is incredibly precarious in this country. Most people can't afford a $500 emergency. Um, and that's incredibly stressful. You know, the price of housing is going up, the price, you know, with inflation, the price of food is going up and people's paychecks aren't, you know, the minimum wage hasn't changed in, God, I don't know, since like the 70s, 80s, you might, you might have a better answer to that. Um, but, um, 
yeah. So in addition to just like trying to survive under the system, we have all these under other hierarchies that we also just made up as a society, like racism and sexism and homophobia, transphobia, you know, people are always dealing with some, some kind of hierarchy. And then there's also the added stress of climate grief now, um, you know, young people are mourning the planet that they're never going to get to experience unless we, you know, make some big changes in the next couple decades. Um, cause yeah, it leaves a lot of people feeling hopeless basically. Um, and, you know, because we don't have any kind of substantial mental health education in this country, a lot of people are from families that didn't do their own healing and then they pass that trauma on to their kids. Um, and so, you know, people just try to cope however they can, but oftentimes that coping tends to look like, you know, alcoholism or drug abuse. And, you know, then those are, that's just compounding issues. That's just adding issues upon issues. But, you know, even if you're not like, you know, actively in a drug addiction or something like that, you know, um, you, even if you think you have like a perfect life, there's not really any life that can't be made better by having like therapy or having a good mental health education, because understanding yourself more, having the types of tools to deepen relationships and resolve conflicts, stuff like that is, um, it's essential. Those types of skills are essential for understanding and enriching your own life and your own experience and having, healthy, meaningful relationships. And right now things like therapy is, are really considered a luxury in this country. And it just really shouldn't be that way. I mean, it's pretty much always been, um, something for the privileged classes. Um, you know, they've yeah. always gotten therapy or psychoanalysis. Everybody else, um, gets meds. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Cover up the symptoms so that we can continue to work productively. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. That's how it goes. All right. So how does this play out? Well, let's go over some of the different communities and how it plays out amongst them. So how about the LGBT community, for people of color and for women uh, to start off with? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, uh, yeah, that's a big question. So I'm just going to break it down um, part by part. So like with the LGBTQ community and um, I'm going to I'm just going to use queer as an umbrella term. Um, it's less syllables than LGBTQ every single time. So queer people and queer youth, um, like, you know, have just basically have a high, higher rates of mental health problems. Um, lesbian, bi, and gay adults are twice as likely, more than twice as likely than straight adults to have mental health issues. Um, and this is according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Um, while as trans people are more than four times as likely to have mental health issues. Um, so like queer, queer high schoolers are four times as likely as straight high schoolers to have attempted suicide. Uh, there was a 2019, uh, two, 200, 2000, uh, 2019 survey, um, that, uh, said that 86% of queer kids had been harassed or assaulted at school. Um, and you know, well, let's look at why this is, you know, take a step back. So when we're talking about gay and trans people and mental health, we have to kind of take into account the role of religion. Um, so, some people may remember uh, in 2014, there was this trans teenager named Leela Alcorn who committed suicide by walking in front of a semi truck in the middle of the night, um, basically because her Christian parents had sent her to conversion therapy um, instead of accepting her gender identity um, as a trans, trans woman. Um, and well, let me explain what conversion therapy is actually. So um, conversion therapy is basically uh, some Christians in the 80s and 90s uh, thought that you could change somebody's, well, really that you could suppress somebody's uh, 
sexuality teach people to suppress that part of themselves and just like be straight. Um, and they did this in a lot of different ways. Like they used some of the ways are kind of just like low level torture, like electrocuting people after when they saw like erotic images of their preferred, you know, um, their preferred uh, gender. Um, and yeah, all kinds of sick stuff. Basically, a lot of it was just psychological torture, though. And um, if you want to actually know more about this, this there's a, a documentary on Netflix called Pray Away that just talks all about this. But um, so, you know, this was going on in the 80s and 90s a lot. Um, and uh, a bunch of people committed suicide, basically a bunch because you can't, you know, you can't really suppress that part of yourself and change that part of yourself. It doesn't work. Um, and after Leela uh, Alcorn committed suicide, it, I think that she had uh, posted a suicide note to Tumblr, something like that. And it really kind of drew attention to this um, conversion therapy as like an issue. And it got banned in a bunch of states. But um, that is to say that religion teaches people uh, to be ashamed of themselves, particularly gay people. Um, like, I think that it can be especially difficult if you grow up as a queer teen, queer or trans uh, child in a uh, religious community or religious family. Like rejection is hard for all of us, right? But like to be rejected by God is a whole other thing entirely. To be told that God sees you as being like personally offensive, um, that is, you know, that's really painful. Um, and so people growing up in these religious communities, um, gay and trans people, um, basically just kind of get all this, this shame kind of heaped upon them. And shame is an extremely toxic and corrosive emotion. And it's correlated with suicidal ideation. Um, because when you're in the midst of like being shamed, being ashamed, um, it can feel overpowering and it feels like there's no way out. And the thing about this is that it's, um, when it comes to like your, your sexual orientation or your, um, gender identity, it's, it's an inherent part of you. It's identity based. So um, identity-based shame, meaning that there's a lot of things in life that you can change, right? If you want to be healthier, you can change your diet. You can start exercising. If you want to be more fun at parties, you can like learn how to play guitar or juggle or something like that, right? Identity, you can't necessarily change. So basically you're being shamed for something that uh, you have basically no control over. And that's why we don't use terms like lifestyle choice anymore, because it's really not a choice. The only choice in the matter of, you know, of being gay is like, you know, you could choose to not get married, I guess you could choose to be celibate, but that's really your only choice. So um, religion has been a big source of, you know, pain and trauma for many queer people. Um, and then society is another one because you know, homosexuality was criminalized in the U.S. up until Stonewall and the gay rights movement. Um, it was put in the DSM, the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is what all therapists and psychiatrists and stuff use for diagnosing people. It was put in that book in 1952, and uh, it was only taken out in 1973. So basically, um, you know, what it means to have your sexuality criminalized is that, you know, throughout the 1800s, 1900s, gay people were banned from federal jobs and police were raiding gay newspapers and gay magazines and cops were raiding gay bars. And, you know, at the time when a, a gay bar got raided and you got busted by the cops, you were dragged outside, men would put their hats over their faces because if there happened to be somebody in the press out there taking photos, and put their photo in the newspaper as a homosexual, they were going to lose their family, they were going to lose their job, their career, you know, everything, they would be rejected by society, essentially. 
Um, and the same thing, you know, newspapers would occasionally print people's names in the paper that had been busted. And, um, you know, this was, it was devastating to people, like their whole reputations were ruined. Um, the cops at the time were participating in entrapment, like trying to catch people cruising, um, you know, looking for partners. Um, and uh, the U.S. Post Office was like to, refusing to deliver gay magazines. Bars were refusing to serve gay people. Basically, you were not allowed to be gay in public up until Stonewall. Um, I could interject existence- here uh, too. I mean, another thing about this that's sort of interesting was um, the situation with how um, you know this was sort of used to police a lot of the federal employees as well. Um, Absolutely. For yeah. several years, uh, I mean, probably for actually considerable amount of years, rather the uh, the CIA's Office of Security kept a uh, a special section of what they affectionately referred to as the fag files, um, which was overseen by a man named uh, General Paul Gaynor, no less. Um, So anyway, essentially, this was a collection of um, DC homosexuals that the CIA kept files on and uh, that they used to blackmail them. Many of them were in the State Department. And uh, this was one of the methods that was used to ensure that elements of the national security state were never subjected to serious investigations. Mm, okay, I didn't know all that. But yeah, I mean, a lot of that kind of bleeds into like the lavender scare too, and like Hayes Code stuff and all kinds of stuff that was going on in like the movie industry and like, all kinds of stuff where, you know, people were accused of being homosexual in the same way that they were accused of being communist. Yeah, no, it was definitely a big part of that era, like in the 1950s. And um, yeah, the Lavender Scare is another interesting one and sort of how it played into some of the antics of Roy Cohn, Donald Trump's political mentor. So I mean, absolutely. uh, Yeah, (laughs) yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's Cohn is a whole other thing for sure. But um, yeah, just so basically, you know, being gay was criminalized, being gay in public was criminalized up until Stonewall. And for your straight listeners who don't know what Stonewall is, basically, in 1969, a bunch of cops raided the Stonewall Inn in New York, which is was a gay bar that, you know, the mob has always been our friend, (laughs) gay people, meaning Uh, I think that was run. I don't remember who it was. It was some mobster was running that bar. Um, The cops raided it to attack all the gay people like they did every Friday night or whatever. Um, and you know, people got tired of being harassed by the police and they started throwing bricks at cops and good for them. <laughs> and then that ended up leading to like, you know, five days of protests and the black Panthers came out to support the gay people. It was, it was awesome basically, but that basically kicked off the gay rights, um, movement where people were like, no, we're not going to be second-class citizens anymore. And so basically the point of all that being, you know, a lot of people don't really understand what gay pride is about, but pride is the opposite of shame, right? For so many years, gay people were shamed and guilted and they had these ruined reputations um, and basically gay pride when there's all these gay guys out there and like neon pink thongs and stuff. It's like you're giving a middle finger to the way that many of us have been taught for decades to feel bad about who we are. Um, but even still, you know, back to the mental health stuff, it's like, you know, um, every queer person knows that there's places in America still to this day where you don't hold your same sex partner's hands. Um, you're not, you can't be openly gay. You can't be openly trans. And I mean, you could ask Matthew Shepard and Brandatina about that, but you know, people are still at a high risk, like especially black trans women that, um, According to the advocate in uh, 2021, there were 50 uh, trans people that were killed and most of them were black trans women. So there's, you know, people are still murdering trans people all the time in this country. Um, And, you know, when it comes to therapy and mental health, getting treatment as a, you know, gay or queer or trans person, um, a lot of therapists just aren't necessarily uh, LGBTQ affirming um, in that they don't really know 
they don't understand the lifestyle. They're not equipped to deal, not lifestyle, the, uh, the way of being alive. Um, they're not equipped to deal with it. They can be clumsy in these ways that um, can harm a client. So if you're working with a therapist who doesn't understand trans or non-binary identities, you know, like basically that they might misgender that client a lot, which can be harmful. Um, and just like staff, you know, a lot of staff in this country in general is not oriented towards um, queer, trans and non-binary experiences. I had a client a long time ago who um, was a trans woman. And I guess at one point they were suicidal and their roommate called the cops and the cops came and, you know, basically beat her, beat my client, um, and handcuffed her and were like misgendering her the whole time. This is while she's suicidal to like drag her out the door to take her to a hospital. So it's just, it's really, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's important to, you know, work with people who are culturally competent when it comes to, um, issues like this. Um, so regarding people of color, um, huh, all right, well, white people who, how, how can I say this nicely, white people who don't think critically about themselves and about um, think critically about their society um, often want to say things like, well, you know, people of color want to make everything about race, you know, people of color are always saying that everything's racist, but the thing is that everything is racist. <laughs> Like the justice system and policing, obviously are racist, but, you know, also drug policy, you know, zoning for housing, um, the way that people of color are portrayed in the news and the media, um, environmental racism with like uh, the places that pipelines and factories go um, or how much nature is like zoned for a different uh, neighborhood. Um, the medical industry, like for example, like even the opioid crisis, like that's mostly a, a white issue because of the fact that doctors are racist in this country and they don't prescribe opiates to black people. Um, and there's different reasons for that. Number one, you know, oftentimes doctors are going to assume that a black person who's actually in pain is just drug seeking. Um, drug seeking, meaning that, you know, this, this person is, has some kind of addiction and they're just trying to get a prescription, you know, for something that they can use like recreationally. Um, and number two, because uh, doctors, there's still all these really weird, outdated ideas about, you know, black biology, such as that black people feel less pain than white people. Um, and this was actually backed up in a study in 2016 of uh, medical students, a few hundred medical students, white medical students were surveyed. And over half of them said that they didn't believe that white people uh, or that black people felt as much pain as white people. And they thought they also had like thicker skin and like different blood and all this weird stuff. So, and that's from the uh, National Academy of Sciences in the USA. It's called racial bias and pain assessment if people want to look it up themselves. But, um, but yeah, I mean, every like the standards of professionalism are also rooted in white supremacy. Like for example, um, like a lot of indigenous tribes have facial tattoos. That's part of their tradition. And so, you know, if they, they have to make a choice, you know, are they going to be part of professional culture where they could have some kind of office job and have some upward mobility, or are they going to have their tradition and, you know, tattoo their face and be, you know, um, represent that as their heritage. Uh, so you're basically asking people to like, you know, make these choices to fit into, um, ideas of professionalism that are rooted in white supremacy. And that's the same with like traditional, traditionally black hairstyles, right? Like that's something that um, comes up a lot with like kids being told in school, little girls, you can't wear your hair this way or women, you can't wear your hair, hair this way in the office, things like that. Um, and beauty standards, like imagine, imagine growing up and being told for most of your life that like your, your features are ugly, right? Beauty standards are rooted in white supremacy with like, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, certain, you know, facial features and whatnot. 
Um, so imagine like what that does to non-white people, like to their self-esteem, just like years of being told that you're unattractive. Um, but I mean, you know, this count country was like founded on racism. There's like manifest destiny, um, you know, that whole thing. And we basically stole all this land based on the idea that indigenous people were inferior. And then we, you know, kidnapped and imported the workforce from Africa to build it and routinely were mass massacring different minorities and making laws against different minorities like um, uh, Japanese internment, Jim Crow, um, Chinese Exclusion Act, ICE. You know, so like you really don't have to go very far into your anti-racism journey before you actually see how everything, everything actually is racist. So once you establish that racism is well exists and is prevalent in pretty much every aspect of American society, like you can also establish that racism and xenophobia are obviously big sources of stress and trauma for people of color. So. Again, it's that identity-based oppression. Like people don't get to change their race just like they don't get to change their sexuality. So, um, so you know, in terms of stress and stress and trauma, like look at, so like the Asian American community is a great example. Like um, during being attacked under COVID repeatedly, you know, old people pushed down or attacked in these different ways. Or um, like when that guy, that Christian guy shot up those uh, spas in Georgia um, that were where the Asian women were giving massages. Um, or, you know, after 9-11, when like anyone who looked vaguely Middle Eastern, um, Southeast Asian was getting attacked, you know, or, you know, the obvious one, the big one is, you know, being black in this country and you're regularly seeing people who look like you getting killed and brutalized by police for doing nothing more than looking like you. Um, you know, you're unarmed and you run from the cops, you get shot, you're selling cigarettes, um, you get choked to death, you're sleeping in your own bed, you get shot to death. Um, you don't even have to be breaking a law. Like in Miami in 2016, there was this guy, this black caregiver who was, um, uh, providing services to this man with autism. And he was like literally lying on his back with his arms up in the air and he still got shot. And fortunately he lived, um, in that particular situation, but, um, you know, and even like black kids are not immune from, you know, police violence. There's, uh, there's this video of a, of a cop in, um, he's like, 200 pound guy and he's literally like picking up a chair and just body slamming this back black teenage girl like in the chair in her classroom um and it's crazy because I was like I was like I better look up the information of where that happened you know for this podcast so that I'll you know I'll have that on hand and so I googled the search term cop body slams black teenage girl in school and I brought up like literally dozens of articles from different places um, the one I'm specifically talking about was Spring Valley High School in South Carolina, but that happened in Florida. It happened in California. And, you know, even last year, there was this nine year old little black girl who uh, she was in Rochester, New York, and she was handcuffed and pepper sprayed nine, nine years old, handcuffed, like pretty sure she wasn't a threat to whatever sadistic cop did that to her. So, um, so, you know, if you're a black person in this country, you're hearing these things all the time. You're seeing these videos and these images like that are circulating online or on the news constantly uh, or over and over again. Like in the case with George Floyd, you know, like we saw that image of him kneeling on his neck for, you know, over and over and over again all summer. And that's extremely traumatic to people to be seeing 
seeing this kind of stuff. And then, you know, that's just the stuff that you're hearing about. That's not the stuff that's happening to you. So, you know, I've had clients, black clients who've had cops, cops pull guns on them. They thought they were going to die. I had a client once who was a black man and he was afraid to go jogging in his neighborhood because he was afraid that a neighbor would see him and just like, you know, make the wrong assumption and that he would end up shot, you know? So, you know, a lot of people, a lot, a lot of black people live in this constant state of anxiety and fear about like what they can do, what they can't do, how to express themselves, how to act. Um, and Dr. Joy DeGruy, and I'm not sure if I'm saying her last name right. I've never heard anybody say it, but um, Joy DeGruy, uh, she wrote this book about this. It's called Post-Traumatic Slavery Syndrome, but it's basically about how trauma has been passed down since slavery, um, you know, because there's all these horrible things happening to people. And then those, those parents never really get healing. They never get to go to therapy after, you know, their uncle was lynched or whatever. And then they just pass on that trauma down generation after generation. And for many people, the black people that are alive today, that's expressed in, um, like hypervigilance, right. Um, and that's great for survival, uh, but it's also just a really exhausting way to live, um, and, you know, there's, I mean, there's even jokes about it's so common hypervigilance that it's, there's jokes about it. You can't make a horror movie with black people, right? Because like, if you, a bunch of black people were partying in the woods, you know, they would be able to hear through all the, all the music to like that sound of a branch breaking, somebody stepping on a twig <laughs> and they would all be running for the car and get out of there, you know, because, um, you know, there's just such a history of just being attacked um, for no reason in many cases. So uh, yeah, so basically, you know, if you're black in this country, you might as well be living under an occupation. Um, so regarding treatment for mental health, um, you know, it's it's complicated because, you know, the fact is that in this country, mental health is largely dominated by white women therapists and only three percent of mental health workers are black. So um you know, basically in mental health, we have it like being able to work with people outside of your own demographic is called cultural competence, cultural competency. Um, and for me personally, I know I only had one class on it in grad school. So, you know, and I'm a person of color, so I do my own research. I, you know, I study this stuff for fun, but most white people are probably not going to do that, honestly, you know, so um, at the very, at the very best, maybe you get a white woman who says that they're a feminist, but they're probably not intersectionally feminist. Um, and, uh, like oftentimes that means that these people can't even like, they can't effectively work with people of color and they can't even really effectively work with other white people who just might have a more nuanced view, um, and understanding of society than they have. So, um, you know, because they just, they don't have the skills, basically, they're going to miss a lot of context. Um, or they're not going to be able to make connections, or they're just going to shut down conversations about race because they feel uncomfortable. Um, or another thing they might do is just gaslight people by saying that it's all in their head and they should just change their thinking and behavior, which is just like extremely harmful. So, you know, a black woman who's trying to go to therapy because she wants to talk about her experiences of racism in the office is not really going to be helped very much by a white woman therapist who believes that racism ended with the Obama administration. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's just not, there's not a lot of white therapists who can really have conversations on that level. Um, so that can be really frustrating for people of color who are trying to get treatment for mental health stuff. Um, you know, you know, Stephen, we live in a patriarchal society. Um, so, uh, you know, under a patriarchy, like qualities that, um, well, first of all, patriarchy decides who should display different qualities, right? Who should display qualities that are feminine and who should display qualities that are masculine. And it also like, um, you know, raises up masculine qualities and devalues feminine qualities. Um, 
So like, for example, women are taught to express anger because it's not like very ladylike, right? Um, whereas, you know, men are taught to suppress every emotion, but anger. Um, so oftentimes, you know, if women are, um, do express emotions, you know, they might be called crazy by men, you know, a lot of women get called crazy. Um, and another thing that women have to deal with that, you know, uh, other populations don't is, you know, um, being sexualized, being over-sexualized from the time that women are children, are children, um, you know, they're, they're taught to cover their shoulders in school so that they're not distracting the boys rather than, you know, the boys being taught to just control themselves or to behave. Um, and then women have to deal with the Madonna whore complex, um, which, you know, basically is stating that a man wants to, is attracted to the whore, but wants to be with the Madonna, um, as like the mother of his children and like trying to be, trying to embody both of those things as a single woman. Um, and, you know, slut shaming and the way that women's bodies are policed by our society. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not going to get too much into, I'm not going to get into rape culture or anything like that, but, you know, women's bodies are policed by society. That should be obvious to most of your listeners. I know your listeners are pretty intelligent. I probably don't have to go into that, but then there's also things like because of the way that women's bodies are policed, um, there's a lot of fat phobia in our society and that results in a lot of like eating disorders and, probably like half of the, the women or the, um, AFAB, AFAB means assigned female at birth. So non-binary people that were assigned female at birth, half of those people, um, have had like a eating disorder or something in the past, or are currently working through eating disorders. It's very common. Um, and then there's all of the different societal expectations put on women, um, wherein, you know, a lot of women over, maybe over identify, in my opinion, maybe over identify with, um, their like beauty standards and whatnot and being beautiful. And, and eventually people are going to age out of that, um, based on what society considers beautiful. And that could be an extremely painful experience for women as they, their bodies start to change as they age. And then they feel less desirable, or they might even feel invisible. You know, there's the elderly women often feel invisible in our society that values youth so much. Um, and again, there's trauma caused by, you know, the religion basically, um, or sexual trauma, which, you know, is very prevalent among, um, women in AFAB people. Um, you know, for, just for example, in my experience, uh, as a therapist working with women, it's pretty common for women to be, um, molested or sexually assaulted or groomed by like male leaders of the church. And then if they bring that to light, if they tell their parents, if they tell their pastors or whatever, a lot of times they're the ones that get blamed for that, right? The man is the groomer or the molester, the rapist is not held to any kind of account. Um, and the woman is blamed for tempting him, even though she might be a 14 year old girl and he's a 35 year old man. Um, she gets blamed for tempting him. Um, and then, you know, she's like basically forced by her community to just forgive him, even though there's been like no path of accountability for him. He's had like no, uh, no, no penalty, no, um, no, no accountability other than just saying, oh, I'm sorry. So you can imagine like what that does to people, um, a woman's ability to trust, like trust herself, trust others, trust her community. So, yeah, um, and again, you know, with all of these things that we've just talked about, you know, I've talked about the mental health impact on people of different marginalized identity, um, whether they're queer or people of color or women. But I mean, intersectionality is like that people could have more than one marginalized identity, right? So if somebody is like a, 
a black trans woman, like she's going to be experiencing racism and transphobia and misogyny, like at the same time, right? Those multiple different um, oppressed identities. And yeah. Um, but anyways, so yeah, all of this devaluing of like the feminine um, is also just part of homophobia too. And it feeds into men's mental health as well. All right. And that provides us with a good segue into our next topic. So how do men factor into this men's mental health and so forth and the, uh, the notion of quote unquote toxic masculinity? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, okay. So toxic masculinity is a buzzword. So let's break down, break it down what that means so that we're all on the same page about what, what we're talking about. So um, so when we say toxic masculinity, we're not talking about all masculinity, um, and we're not saying that men can't be men. So specifically, we're talking about the ways that men have been conditioned by society to express their um, masculinity in ways that hurts them, hurts the men themselves, and that also hurts women and hurts society. So, so for example, like what's meant by this? Um, let's say. So the men, the men are really like the first victims of this when they're children, right, of toxic masculinity, maybe coming from their family members. So, so say that a man is a, when men are little boys, um, they're, they're learning how to squash themselves down. They're being squashed down by their family and they're learning how to squash themselves down. So, for example, maybe a little boy doesn't want a toy gun. He wants a kitchen set. Um, and, you know, who knows, he could have grown up to be like a famous chef or something like that but he never, that part of him never got to be nurtured because, you know, boys are supposed to want guns and dad thought that he should be playing football or something instead. So, um, so, you know, instead of getting the kitchen set or instead of going to dance lessons or something, you know, um, the little boy gets put into peewee football and told to do masculine activities and quote unquote masculine activities. And it's really sad for society um, and for the men, of course, themselves, because like how many, how many dancers, how many male dancers, how many musicians, how many artists have we missed out on as a society because their parents thought that creativity was feminine? Um, and then, you know, as boys get older, there's all these other additional expectations that are put on them to cut them off from uh, themselves, from, from their own emotions, um, from emotional intimacy um, with other boys, but also with women. Um, so, you know, oftentimes young men are, aren't allowed to feel any kind of emotion besides anger. Cause even being too excited or too enthusiastic or, um, experiencing like childlike wonder or playfulness, those things are considered too feminine. So they have to like kill off a part of themselves. And, um, it's, it's funny. Bill Burr actually does this really funny bit about this, where he's talking about how, you know, men aren't allowed to like pet puppies or like, you know, do anything fun because it's considered gay and feminine and whatnot. And how, um, he wanted, he really wanted to get a pumpkin for Halloween. He wanted to carve a pumpkin, but he couldn't just get a pumpkin because that's gay. So he had to like maneuver his girlfriend at the grocery store to like see the pumpkin so that she would get excited about a pumpkin and like want to buy a pumpkin and carve pumpkins. And then he could just like passively agree to get a pumpkin. Um, and it's just so ridiculous. It's like, dude, if you just want a pumpkin, just get a freaking pumpkin. Like, what is the big deal? But like a lot of men are kind of stuck in these like really rigid ways of thinking where they're like, I can't do that. That's gay. I can't, I can't try that. That's gay. You know, like it's, it's really sad for the men themselves who are suppressing themselves. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times, I don't know, like they, like they, they're basically, 
men aren't really taught how to like regulate their own emotions or co-regulate. Co-regulate means um, to like regulate with somebody else. So like if you saw a mother with a child who's the mother's like with the child saying, hey, okay, let's take some deep breaths, you know, and the mother might be holding the child or something to kind of calm them down. That's basically what co-regulation is. And it's something that we all do with each other, right? So if you're venting on the phone with your friend about your, the crappy day you had at work, like that's co-regulation. Um, but, you know, a lot of times men aren't taught co-regulation. They're not even taught self-regulation. So they're like punching walls and shit like that. So, um, so basically what ends up happening is that um, men become kind of desperate for like female attention because having a girlfriend or having a wife is kind of like seen as the only safe space for men to kind of outsource their emotional needs behind closed doors. Right. So um, and statistically this bears out like men who marry live longer and they're happier and they're healthier, um, because they have their, you know, their needs outsourced, their emotional labor has been outsourced to this one person, but you know, there's plenty of men who aren't lucky enough to find girlfriends and wives and like what happens to them. And additionally, it's like touches a human need. There was this, um, study that was done on orphan babies that were institutionalized in 1915. And it found that the babies that didn't get enough attention and touch, um, enough love affection, basically they just wasted away. Human beings just like basically die without love, without affection, without physical affection. Um, and human beings, I mean, men, adult men are just adult babies. They were just older babies. Right. So, um, like people need touch, but, and they could be getting hugs from their homeboys, you know, in the same ways that girls will like cuddle on the couch and watch a movie. Men could be like at least getting hugs or something like that too. But a lot of men think that it's gay <laughs> to like hug their homies. So, you know, so they're not, um, they're not getting that physical affection that they need. Um, so, uh, so yeah, the lack of the emotional support, you know, um, and uh, there's also this idea about like independence that men have, like they have to be emotional, they have to be completely on their own and independent. And that works against them in terms of like, even being able to perceive that there is emotional support available around them. Um, but, you know, toxic masculinity also impacts men's ability to even get into relationships in the first place, because um, like in the old days, you know, like women had to rely on men. Um, women couldn't even have bank accounts until the seventies. So what else could they do? They had to be with a man. Even if the man was beating them, they had to kind of be with a man, but now women have their own money. Um, so in order to get a girlfriend or a wife, men have to be likable. Um, they have to be somebody that women want to be around and have around. And that, that means being somebody with a high emotional IQ, um, a man who could communicate about their feelings and can like hear women's feelings and support, support them um, when women communicate theirs. And men just really aren't taught how to do that. Um, and, you know, a lot of this is just leading to, there's a lot of death of despair now among men because, um, because of just, you know, loneliness and suicide and um, uh, sorry, death of despair refers to things like suicide and um, drug overdose, things like that. So, um, yeah. So a lot of this is leading men to die younger. The mortality uh, rate has risen 30% in the, uh, in the last, uh, let's see, what is that? Like 20 years, it's risen 10% in the last 20 years. Um, and yeah, that's just, that's just sad for men. Um, like, you know, you only get one life. Why wouldn't you just want to be fully yourself and have all the support and love that you, you fully can. Um, yeah. Anyways. That's all I have to say about that subject. 
Yeah, and it's kind of interesting too. I mean, I think for a lot of years, workaholism was a major issue. Um, I mean, with men in this country, uh, especially, but uh, it's kind of interesting. I think kind of corresponding in the you know, the same time frame of the participation rate of men, especially like in their prime working years, has uh, started to decline substantially as well. Um, Absolutely. You know, some of that is due to substance abuse. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of other factors in it as well. But I mean, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I also think that's kind of another thing is the, uh, because so many men define themselves, I think a lot of times by their jobs, uh, the inability to find unfulfilling labor has been uh, also sort of catastrophic too. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, we, everybody, the whole country has had declining economic prospects for the last 30 years. And like, there's been no like raise to like um, uh, uh, wages to real wages, you know, profits are going through the roof, but like real wages have not increased since like, it's like 79, 80 something. Um, so yeah, I think for Um, like, I mean, for manual labor too, because I mean, it's been devalued so much, uh, I mean, in the country, I mean, for the last, you know, really, especially 20 or 30 years as well. So, I mean, I think that's kind of a contributing factor. I mean, a lot of people don't want to do manual labor. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to be mean, but just speaking as someone who's worked in a kitchen for many years, dealing with a lot of millennials with this can be, um, especially men can be problematic, let us just say. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And I think, I mean, you know, all the factory jobs, you know, um, what was it? Uh, What's the, you're going to know this more. I can't, it's off the, (laughs) it's on the tip of my tongue, but it's not on the tip of my brain. Um, The law that where they started sending factories overseas. Oh, NAFTA, Um, you mean? NAFTA, yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so after that passed, I mean, people used to, you didn't have to have a college degree to make a good living, be able to buy a house and raise a family and all that. And like, now, you know, there's no factory jobs in this country. So, um, you know, uh, back in back in our grandparents days, or maybe even our parents days, people could work for 40 years for General Motors and retire with a gold watch and all that stuff and kind of just live the good life. And now there's so much, you know, so much less uh, economic security. And that is stressful, especially to men who have traditionally been seen as like the breadwinners. Right. And then those jobs are no longer available for them to, uh, be able to identify with as you, as you mentioned just a moment ago. Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely a, uh, I mean, it's a new situation certainly. Um, but yeah. And then, I mean, obviously in the, uh, the uh, glorious COVID world that we now live in, uh, you know, that's another issue as well. So let's get into that now. All right. So as far as relationships, isolation is a major issue and COVID has further exasperated that. So, I mean, how's all this affecting society at large? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I feel that one on a personal level. I've been really thanking God that I'm an only child and I'm very comfortable with my own company. Um, but even after like two years, you know, I live alone, I have a dog and I'm not seeing anyone. It's starting to get to me too. But, um, yeah, um, loneliness, I mean, loneliness was an issue even before COVID. Um, there was a 2018 study that said that loneliness tops obesity as a health risk and it's worse than smoking, um, a pack a day, uh, for your health in terms of health and longevity. Um, and I mean, human beings, I mean, we're a social species, you know, like in terms of evolution, it's how it's literally how we survive. Like we're hairless. We don't have sharp teeth or claws. We're not as fast or strong as other animals. 
but we've always just like worked together as a group to meet all of our own needs. And, um, you know, since our, since our inception on the African savannas. So this whole experience is really contrary to our needs as human beings. And, um, you know, people's individual mental health is really suffering at this point. People are experiencing a lot of pandemic fatigue. Uh, depression is really starting to kick in. It was anxiety at the beginning of the pandemic. It was anxiety and now it's just depression. Um, but, uh, yeah, mental health suffering, a major blow. Um, and, uh, I think really also developmentally, it's going to be really interesting to see how these kids who are out of school right now and not socializing are going to do in 10 years from now. I think it's going to be a very interesting sociological experiment. Um, but yeah, um, you know, I think there was some studies that were, uh, done a few years ago about how, you know, uh, 50 years ago, people felt like they had more friends, um, and now most people um, don't have more than three people that they would consider good friends. And some people, like, I think it's like, it's an astonishing number. I don't have the number in front of me right now, but it's something like 50% of people don't even feel like they have one friend who they could call, you know, if they needed support and stuff like that. So loneliness is a major uh, issue. Isolation is a major issue. Um, and, um, you know, part of that in the last couple decades has been the uh, evaporation of like third spaces um, from our society. So um, third spaces, meaning, you know, you have your home, that's your first place, you have your job, that's your second place. And the third place is where you go just to like, hang out and be in community with other human beings. So, you know, back in our day, you know, in the 80s and 90s, we had malls, basically, like we would go to the mall and hang out, on, hang out with our friends at the mall and just, you know, drink orange Julius's or whatever, and maybe catch a movie and just, you know, have a place to spend time with each other. And now you can't really go any place without spending money. Um, everything just revolves around money. So, you know, kids that try to hang out at the mall these days are getting shooed away and, um, you can't even go to a movie. Like adolescents can't go to a movie with each other, like 13 year olds, you have to be in the company of an adult. Um, so there's just not really any, place for people to be together anymore, um, without having to spend money. And so a lot of people are, you know, relying on social media, um, even before COVID social media was really kind of taking the place of like normal social interactions. And, um, you know, there's been well-documented, documented negative effects of that on Instagram. There was, um, a study that was done a couple years ago about how, um, teenagers on Instagram are like more likely to be suicidal and stuff. Cause they're constantly comparing themselves to other people in this kind of weird fantasy airbrushed world, um, where, you know, people are intentionally posing and intentionally trying to spark envy in the hearts of others rather than just being real people. So, um, yeah, but you know, social media, we're all re pretty much relying on social media at this point, And it's really a pale imitation to, you know, having friends in real life, like in person. I mean, you know, kind of another, well, I mean, there's a lot of devastating effects, I think, about the rise of social media and the part on our lives. But I mean, I think it, you know, it's also uh, on a lot of levels preconditioning people, I mean, to this, you know, constant surveillance and so forth as well. Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, I just, this is probably something that you've noticed as well, but it just seems staggering uh, the difference, you know, uh, in views of uh, this for those of us in a lot of cases who grew up. 
uh, prior to the rise of the internet. You know, I mean, we all both kind of had a childhood in the 80s uh, before, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, the online world really came into being as we know it now. So, uh, you know, I mean, to us, it's kind of appalling, you know, the notion to constantly be under the, uh, the specter of cameras and what have you. But I mean, so many millennials have grown up, I mean, wanting this, you know, with their computers and so forth. I mean, to participate in this online world and I mean certainly I mean it's uh, the process of this is sped up so I mean it's uh, it's yeah. just really I think for me it's very panopticon yeah 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 and uh, I mean you know obviously we've some of the early psychological studies that have been done with people on social media because I mean it really has become almost an addiction as well I mean conversely a lot of millennials who've tried absolutely addictive yeah media, you know I mean they've had just major bouts of depression and just uh, it's you know, there's a lot of things about this, I think, to be concerned about, but, um, yeah, know. I absolutely predict that technology addiction is going to be in the DSM six, whenever that comes out. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, unbelievable in a lot of ways. Yeah. All right. So broadly speaking, what is capitalism's role and how we treat mental health or lack therefore of today? Yeah, well, um, yeah. So when people think about mental health, it's basically, it's often just in relation to compliance with capitalism. Um, well, that is to say like compliance with productivity. So, um, so people with that have like ADHD, for example, are trying to focus on work that they just find terribly boring. Um, or, you know, people can have made like major depression and they're trying to force themselves out of bed and into the office so that they don't end up homeless too, on top of the depression. So um, it's really like, no matter what's going on in your life, your wife, like could have just died. You can't just like lay in bed and be sad. So you have to just, you have to get up, you got to go to work, you got to produce. And a lot of issues are just, um, they're normal, they're natural. And they take time to, to heal like grief or, um, like PTSD. Um, after you have some experience that was like life-threatening or traumatic. Um, so like you could have, you could have gotten just like robbed on the weekend. You're out with your friends on Friday night and you got robbed and beaten and you thought you were going to die. That's not something that you can just take a pill to fix and, you know, just be fine back at work on Monday. Um, so, um, basically like capitalism wants us to individualize problems. Um, so like if we medicate ourselves or if we read this self-help book or if we meditate or, you know, if we clear out all of our clutter, you know, like we're just going to somehow be able to fix ourselves, but that's really not like, that's not how systems work, um, because no human being exists in a vacuum. Um, and a lot of these problems are societal. So, you know, like loneliness that I mentioned before, this is like, a, there's an epidemic of loneliness in this country, or just the constant stress and trauma of trying to survive under capitalism, you know, walking past these tent cities. And like, you know, it's just one problem leads into another problem leads to into another. And there's these giant systems that need to be fixed. Um, so uh, yeah, so a lot of these systems, like a lot of these problems are systemic. And that means like big changes, not like small little changes, like on the personal level. Um, but you know, that's not really how capitalism works. Capitalism wants to sell us something to fix ourselves. So, you know, a lot of people, so there's this idea, um, that was going around a lot in the eighties and nineties that like mental health is a chemical imbalance, right? Um, that's a theory that was actually disproven in the eighties. And like the reason that that theory still exists, that there's, you know, mental health is the result of a chemical imbalance in your brain is basically because of marketing. 
Um, at the time, there were a lot of medical studies that, you know, um, companies were basically cherry picking and marketing to doctors directly. And then doctors just were like, oh, chemical imbalance. And they were also marketing it directly to the public in the form of advertising. Um, but that was never true. <laughs> it's not a chemical imbalance. Um, but I think that a lot of people want to identify with that because so many people are so miserable and they're so desperate to like find an answer. Right. So, cause it seems like something they could fix. Right. So it's, if they, if there's a chemical imbalance in their brain, they could be like, Oh, it's, it's just my broken brain, you know, and it gives them some kind of like control sense of control over their own lives. If like I take this pill, then I'll be better. But, um, you know, that's, <laughs> it may or may not be true. Right. Because, you know, um, it could be that there's, real shit going on that's actually bothering you on a systemic level and it feels easier to fix yourself than to fix these giant systems of oppression um and you know don't get me wrong like i'm not saying that these meds are, are crappy across the board like they're great for some people um and they're great for a lot of people for the short term so that they can kind of get a handle on things but for a lot of other people they're just kind of like numbing um and they're not necessarily healing they're just this a band-aid basically and they're not dealing with the underlying problem that was making them miserable in the first place. Um, you know, I don't believe in negative emotions. Emotions are our friends. Um, they're our guides. They're kind of pointing to like what's working and what's not working. Um, but you know, emotions are inconvenient for capitalism because sometimes emotions get in the way of your productivity. So, you know, capitalism will create the problem and then sell us the solution. And, you know, the solution is always buying something when it comes to capitalism. Um, so a lot of times, you know, when it comes to mental health, we're just like, we're measuring ourselves against these standards of productivity, um, you know, that we're just, <laughs> they're just whack to begin with. Like, you know, we don't need to be measuring ourselves for against these, you know, expectations of what humans should be or do um, that are, you know, passed down to us by our, our, by our lords, <laughs> by our ruling class um, to tell us how to, how to be, um, so to speak. All right, so you got into TikTok and you've had a bit of success with that as well. Uh, and I urge all of you guys out there uh, to check out Pierce's TikTok page. Uh, her uh, videos are fabulous. Uh, hopefully it is back up or uh, on some other uh, variation by the time this uh, podcast is up because uh, they are definitely great. You can find her, hopefully on TikTok, back at her regular abode at PierceTherapy.com. And remember, Pierce's name is spelled P-E-A-R-C-E, -E, not P-I-E-R-C-E. -E. It's with an A, guys. Okay, so for the TikTok page, the main one, it is Pierce Therapy. That's P-E-A-R-C-E, -E, therapy, all one word, dot com. Now, in case that that somehow mysteriously disappears, there is a backup account. That is tiktok.com backslash at not not pierce therapy. The last part is all one word. That is not N-O-T times two, not not pierce, P-E-A-R-C-E therapy. Okay, guys. And also you can find Pierce on Instagram at pierce therapy. But anyway, what is your approach to this in reaching the kids, Generation Z and so forth? Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, so just as an update, my main account was recently banned. It was banned last last Monday. Um, and I think that is, you know, interesting and important to talk about. Um, so my old account was Pierce Therapy. Um, my new account is not not Pierce Therapy, <laughs> um, which is not N-O-T, not N-O-T, 
Pierce, P-E-A-R-C-E, therapy. Um, so basically my account was banned because I had some strikes against me for these history posts that I was doing. Um, and, you know, I think that it's actually really important to reflect on the fact that it was my history content that got me kicked off of TikTok in light of like the current ban to push CRT um, and like the Florida ban to protect white people from feeling discomfort about issues of race and stuff. Um, but yeah, censorship is, you know, censorship is a huge problem online, but TikTok is most than worse is blah. TikTok is worse than most. Um, because I mean, like when it comes to these history videos, you know, I had my videos flagged for saying things like interracial sex when I'm talking about um, colonial America or, um, you know, uh, I did this thing talking about Operation Paperclip and, you know, you have to dance. They don't let you say things like Nazi. So you have to dance around words like that by saying Yahtzee, like the game. Um, but there is also these other issues that um, I guess, you know, they got flagged. I got basically a lot of my stuff got flagged for hate speech. That wasn't hate speech because, you know, all of TikTok's um, auto flagging programs are basically robots and there's no context for um having a robot like tell you what's hate speech and what's not. And then the review process when you make an appeal is also just really ridiculous because they don't tell you what's wrong. They just say this was, you know, taken down for hate speech or whatever. Um, and then you have to kind of take a guess. So you can edit the video and try to post it again, but it's, you know, it might still not go up and you'll get another mark on your account, another ding. So, um, so yeah, it's, you know, it's a people who, this is pretty common. People who talk about Nazis on TikTok get, you know, in a critical way, um, get removed for hate speech. Um, whereas, you know, there was a, there was an account on there called Blackface Hype House um, that was up for a few weeks. And it was literally just teenagers in blackface, like full blackface, like dark black makeup with like white lips, you know, and like, or like red lips and just the most obscene offensive shit ever. Um, and you know, people reported that count. It took thousands of people reporting that count to get it taken down. Um, I reported it in my appeal and like, they came back and said, no, this wasn't offensive, like just ridiculous stuff. So, um, so people who talk bad about Nazis get taken down while well, that kind of stuff stays up for a long time. And then, you know, there's, there's a pro Appalachian account. Um, like it's a pro worker count that's based in, you know, some, some people that live in Appalachia. And I was on their post the other day and they, they were saying something about how every single time they post about civil disobedience that their uh, video gets taken down. Um, and, you know, there's, uh, there's been lots of experiences with black creators on there who, you know, they're calling out white supremacy and their videos are routinely taken down for quote unquote bullying and harassment, you know, it's violating community guidelines by bullying people. So, you know, I think it's really important to have this conversation like, um, do we want these social media companies having the right to censor us? Because like some of the first things, wasn't there a, didn't they stop social media during the Arab spring? Do you, you probably know more about that than me, Stephen, if you want to chime in. Well, they attempted to, but, um, a lot of activists, uh, were able to, um, continue to run social media throughout the Arab Springs though. But uh, yes, there were attempts to uh, ban it. But uh, again, you know, it was also the, um, I would say in a lot of cases, the activists that were uh, working with maybe some of the more suspect American players uh, that were active and all of that. So it's probably a situation where so long as you 
uh, had a message that was desirable by the U.S. national security state, uh, you had access to social media, and if you didn't, you you know didn't have anything. So, right, yeah, yep, yep, that tracks. But yeah, um, yeah, I mean, I think that these platforms need to be. I don't know what owned by the public nationalized, I guess. Um, like having these private companies have so much control over like who gets to say what is just, I think it's really dangerous. Um, Cause at the end of the day, you know, TikTok is out there to make money um, just like every other, you know, Instagram, every other thing, Facebook. So, you know, things that, things that go against, you know, it's, it's bottom line of, you know, making, making money um, or upholding, you know, this, the current uh, oppressive structures, oppressive hierarchies are going to uh, not fly on that platform. And that's a real bummer. But uh, yeah, anyways, to answer your question, um, I got into TikTok during the pandemic, like most people. Um, I had resisted for a really long time because I just thought it was like a kid's dancing app. But, um, you know, I heard somebody like a few months ago refer to it as like a resurrection of like the vaudeville variety acts and i think that really is like pretty apt description for what tiktok is for the 21st century um and initially i had kind of gotten on there just to like talk about therapy stuff um because there's a lot of therapists on there that are you know giving advice or teaching skills or whatever else but you know i quickly became an outlet for me for just these kind of satirical critiques of capitalism um just kind of to vent to <laughs> for my own mental health um, and because I see those issues, like the issue of mental health and, and things like capitalism and, um, these, these issues to be incredibly intertwined. Um, so, um, in terms of my approach to connecting, um, I mean, I make, I make different types of content, so it's different for each one. You know, I, I make typically I make three different types of content, uh, satirical commentary, um, those history things where I describe, you know, historical events in under three minutes and, uh, therapy content. So uh, with the history video, which is like my most popular series on there, that's just basically like fast, it's basically fast paced collages um, that are just comprised of like GIFs, audio clips, video clips um, with my voice narrating the gist of the story. Um, and, you know, the whole, the whole idea with that was to kind of appeal to the youngsters because in everybody, millennials and younger, they all have ADHD. <laughs> so like it's, it's. I found it to be very effective in like holding people's attention um, rather than just some chick getting up and talking about, you know, the founding fathers for three minutes. So, um, so that has worked very well. Um, and uh, so in terms of other things for connecting with an audience, like the video that I had that went viral um, ended up basically on a, uh, uh, ended up on anti-work TikTok and it, um, I had a bunch of people like write articles about it and I was interviewed by Bora Panda. So that was basically about just how many mental health problems are a direct result of living under capitalism. So people seem to be ready for that message. You know, I mean, I mean, there's the great resignation that's happening right now. And there's um, a lot of people are be really becoming disillusioned with, um, you know, the system that we live under and realizing that we're all being basically held hostage by capitalism and realizing that the, the American dream is a lie for our generation and, um, and people younger. And, uh, yeah, so I guess you know, people are ready to hear that type of thing. Where do you see corporate America's influence standing in terms of control over the press of destroying the environment and so forth in this foul year of our Lord 2022? Yeah. Um, 
I mean, they control, they already own and control everything and they're trying to control a lot more. Um, I think that, I think every now and then they let the mask slip. Like when Nestle was um, saying that water isn't a human right and it should be privatized and they should be able to make a profit off of it. Um, you know, I think, I think it's obvious to people that are paying attention that the end goal is for them to own just like absolutely everything. And for all of us to have to go through them to survive. Um, and, you know, I mean, what is it? Bill, Bill Gates is like now the largest, the largest like private farm owner, like fi uh, farmland owner, something like that. And like real estate yeah. firms are buying up all the single family homes in the country to turn the whole nation into a, you know, a permanent class of renters. And, you know, that used to be the only place, the only, like one of the best ways to start to uh, get financially stable and accrue wealth was home ownership. And it's just being taken off the table for like an entire generation of people. Um, and I think that people like to say that like capitalism isn't the problem and it's crony capitalism, quote unquote, as if like there's some kind of imaginary state of like pure capitalism um, where, you know, everybody would have unicorns and puppies and, you know, we're all singing Kumbaya, but it's just like, it's not like the corruption in capitalism. Is, it's not a bug. It's the feature. Um I, it's like it's pretty obvious that the people that have the money are going to be buying government officials to have them make the laws that will get them more money so that they can buy more government officials <laughs> so that they can just continue like consolidating power, you know, forever and ever. So um, and I think that they really <clears throat> they really like work hand in hand and they just like feed off of each other, you know, so like. You know, for example, there is that Amazon was working with the CIA on on like a uh, facial recognition. Um, and, you know, so the government gets out of that deal, the government gets authoritarian surveillance surveillance of its own citizens and Bezos gets hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and then like, you know, in terms of working together, feeding off of each other, like the the government poisoned the water of Flint, Michigan. Um, and then Nestle buys the water rights, like right in the next county and pumps that water out of the earth, out of the land um, for uh, 150 gallons, 150 gallons a minute pumping out of the land. Um, they're paying $200 a year to do it. And they're selling it back to the community in Flint, Michigan that has no choice um, but to buy this water because their water has been poisoned by their own government. So it's like, you know, it's really creepy when you think about them having this much power, like owning all of the resources, because when it comes to things like water, it really doesn't matter like how much it costs, right? Like if it could cost $40 a bottle and you're still going to have to buy it for you and your family, because if you don't drink water, you're going to be dead in three days. Like you have, no matter how much it costs, you have to pay it. So, um, so that's really freaky because, you know, like they're basically buying up everything so that you know, they, we don't have, we don't have a choice in that. To me, it just feels like a form of slavery. Um, and yeah, it's freaky, but I mean, when it comes to the press, it's like, um, so like, you know, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington post. And so like around the time that everybody was outraged that Bezos was trying to bring back factory farms, like coincidentally, this like editorial pops up about how, you know, company towns are actually going to just like lift the world out of poverty and company towns are actually really great. You know, all this stuff. It's like, it's so like, <laughs> it's so like blatantly absurd on its face, you know, you know, like, um, uh, that's so funny. Just add this in the, uh, the family, uh, that developed the company town, I think the first one in like Hopedale, Massachusetts, the Draper family, um, the, 
patriarch of the or the scion of the family going forward in the 21st century, uh, Wycliffe Prescott uh, Draper, uh, was actually the principal funder behind the Pioneer Fund. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it was the one that uh, sponsored the bell curve and pretty much kept um, the American eugenics movement alive uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War. Um, so that's the, the legacy of um, the family that uh, created the company town. Um, so yeah, uh, anytime anybody tells you anything about that, they're utterly full of shit. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, you know, there was also that thing that happened with Sinclair, you know, a few years back during the Trump administration where, um, like, Sinclair owns, I don't remember how many, it's like 210 local news stations across the country. And like, there was that incident that happened where they were all saying the exact same thing at the like same on that same, the same day, they were all saying the same thing because they had had a message passed down to them from, you know, the CEO or whatever. Um, so it's like, you know, there's this massive, you know, consolidation of who owns the media and then they're gonna it's it's propaganda they're telling people what they want them to hear and only what they want them to hear right there's no other perspectives offered at that point um you're not going to hear about you know um leftist uprisings that worked <laughs> in whatever country you know it's all going to be oh cuba bad or left you know socialism bad blah 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 like they can give you any messages they want it's all just propaganda um and you know that's that's very limiting. It's very limiting to the human mind and to also our potential as a society. But um, but you know, it's it's kind of like the same issue though with like social media censorship because you know a lot of people get their news now on social media because um, it's just convenient if you're already you know scrolling through something to click on something and and the you know the media companies are controlling what's get, what gets out there like with Facebook with like the misinformation stuff. Um, they're controlling what info gets out there, um, but like. You know, I mean, I heard about like, I heard about John Deere, like that strike and the Kellogg strike and like the Amazon unionizing efforts. I heard about all that stuff on TikTok. Um, and, you know, you kind of, if you're scrolling through TikTok, it gives you the basic idea. And then if you want to go click and, you know, Google it and read some articles, then you can do that too, you know? So like what happens when TikTok is pulling people's videos down or banning their accounts, you know? Like the thing is, it's like, <laughs> I guarantee that if there's ever some kind of like Weinstein fiasco, like, or labor issues or something like at TikTok, the business, you're sure as shit not going to hear about it on TikTok, the app. So it's kind of like that, um, that Audre Lorde quote, you know, the master's tools will never, never dismantle the master's house. Um, drinking some water. Um, but yeah, um, I guess in terms of like environment, destroying the environment, there's this just kind of like with with everything having to do with capitalism, there's this whole push to kind of individualize saving the world. So, you know, we don't need to stop drilling in the Arctic. You need to buy a Tesla or a Prius, um, which most people just can't afford. Or, um, you know, you need to stop using plastic straws and switch to these paper ones. And then, and then, you know, it's, oh, the planet died. Well, I guess you didn't buy enough paper straws, you bad consumer. So it seems like the path is always just like buying things, you know, like our, our holy, our holy God and savior capital. Um, but, you know, it just, it really diverts the responsibility away from oil companies, you know, spilling millions of gallons into the Pacific. Like um, it's not even lingering on like the conspic conspicuous consumption of, you know, billionaires who are taking private jets everywhere or own $500 million yachts. Um, it's like, 
it wants you to just kind of turn away from deconstructing these systems that are working against all of us and the planet um, and just focus on yourself. Um, because when you're just focusing on yourself and like, you know, recycling the cans and bottles that we found out aren't even being recycled, <laughs> it's like, you know, you, this is, this of course is going to benefit this tiny minority of individuals at the top that are just fucking stealing everything. All right. Now we love talking about Elon Musk here on the farm. And as I take it, you do too. So what are your thoughts on this gentleman? Uh, I fucking hate that guy. I hate him. Um, I hate Jeff Bezos too, obviously, but like at least Bezos has the de- like the decency to just like stay off Twitter. Um, Musk is like completely the opposite. He's just like this little boy, like pulling on your pants leg. And it's just so he just oozes this whole, like, you know, please like me, please think I'm a super smart, cool boy um kind of vibe and it's just really off-putting and uh well to people who can see through it but i think that a lot of people can't see through it like nerdy men especially um and i think they can't see through it or they choose not to see through it because they identify so much with him and like what he's about because there's some like part of them that also thinks that they could somehow ascend to like you know this kind of like rock stardom level where they're like sleeping with like supermodels and like famous singers and musicians and whatnot and um, having their own like throng, throng of fanboys following them around, screaming them, laughing at all their dumb Twitter jokes. Like, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's like, okay, you know, Josh, like Musk's dad owns an ember, uh, uh, an emerald mine and you work at freaking Best Buy. Like you're not really set up in the same way to like achieve ex- success, like in the same way that like Musk was, um, But um, even like class conscious people, I think that a lot of us can like admit that we just like openly hate Jeff Bezos because like we all see him as this like Lex Luthor kind of like supervillain. But like for some reason, like Musk gets this like pass with people um, that's super annoying um, because he's like he's likable or whatever. Like he's not likable. There's no likable billionaires, (laughs) y'all. Like to make a billion dollars, you're like literally screwing people over and like decimating industries and stuff like Musk's Tesla factory is famous for being like this, like super dangerous place to work. And like, do you remember when he just um, he just ignored the lockdown to keep his factory open at the beginning of covid and he was just like defying California's orders. He was like, I don't give a shit about you, my employees. I don't give a shit about your health or your families. Or if you take home COVID to somebody who's going to die of COVID, like, you know, you get your, you get your ass to work and you make me some more money. Um, and it's just like, he's, he's like polluting space. Like he just sent like a freaking car into space for no reason. And like, he has some big piece of space trash. that's going to hit the moon. Like, it's just, did you hear about this? The moon space trash? No, but I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, he's like, he's like literally polluting space. Like, it's just, I don't know. I, I can't stand, I can't stand Musk. Um, but also he has this reputation for like being just this like prick that comes after people and retaliates against people. So I will have to say all this stuff is alleged. Everything I just said is alleged aside from my own opinion of him, which I think, <laughs> I think I'm about, I am allowed to say, but um, yeah, it's alleged, but you can Google it yourself. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the other thing about Musk, too, I mean, you have to understand is, I mean, I just I think a lot of this is just essentially uh, a cover 
to continue advancing uh, the defense industry. I mean, again, a major holder in SpaceX is Peter Thiel. I mean, who, you know, much of his fortune is actually based off of defense contracts via Palantir. Uh, I think that this is the same angle that they're looking at. I mean, for SpaceX, I mean, you see the same thing with Robert Bigelow and uh, his whole scheme over there. Uh, but, you know, another point I want to make here before we sort of move on, I mean, um, you know, typically when we kind of think of the black heart of capitalism, people look at the banking sector, but I think we're really seeing the end of the, uh, you know, the reign of financial capitalism. I mean, with the rise of central bank, digital currencies, CBDCs, and uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, it's really going to bring an end to banking as we know it. And uh, it's difficult to say what uh, that uh, is going to do in terms of the scale of the influence of that industry. But I think that it's, uh, you know, especially after the 08 uh, financial crisis, I think from various things that have happened, it is in decline. And the void is being filled by a lot of these tech companies. And we're seeing, uh, as a result of this, the rise of surveillance capitalism through this. And in a lot of ways, I mean, this is just absolutely terrifying. Uh, in the past, obviously, exploitation has obviously gone hand in hand with capitalism. Uh, but this was a physical external kind of exploitation in a lot of cases. Uh, obviously, I mean, it could be internalized through things like prison, through warfare and so forth. But I mean, there were at least elements of the population that were shielded from it. But I mean, I think with the rise of things like social media and so forth, and how much I mean, they've tried to make society dependent on online apps, you're seeing this class exploitation being taken to an internal level to which, you know, uh, just, you know, wasn't really possible in uh, earlier stages of human history. You know, this is really uncharted waters to what this is going to do from us. I mean, from just so many levels. And I mean, it is, I just think, absolutely terrifying. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, what I, <laughs> honestly, what I find more terrible is what you said just a minute ago about SpaceX basically is going to create the Death Star, probably. <laughs> like, won't it be great for the military industrial complex when they can just like nuke an entire town from space? Yeah, I mean, just all of this stuff is absolutely insane. Um, but, you know, this is the, uh, the world that we are moving towards. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So on that note, let us get into the uh, the full in chief who is overseeing the uh, procession to oblivion. How do you feel about Joe Biden, Pierce? <laughs> Fuck Joe Biden. <laughs> I mean, like these right wingers are so funny with their let's go, Brandon stuff. It's like if you want to say it, say say it with your chest. Um, I mean, you know, fuck Trump, fuck Donald Trump more, obviously. But um, in my opinion, Biden's just only he's only better than Trump and that he's not like overtly racist. So he's not in, like empowering that segment of the population. But, um, you know, I mean, to be real, he's still racist. Um, he was against school busing because he wanted to keep his precious white children away from a so-called racial jungle. Um, and he like he wrote the 94 crime bill. Um, he's he's in the pocket of Wall Street. Like he's never been he's never going to do anything for the working class. Like so ridiculous when these people thought that he was going to like cancel student loans. I was like, uh, <laughs> no, no, the fuck he's not. 
Um, I mean, how, how could you look at Joe Biden's past and think that he was going to do anything for the working class? He did that um, 2005 bankruptcy act that like made it impossible for people to like discharge, you know, credit card debt or um, student loans through bankruptcy so that they just have to suffer, you know, forever under these crushing debts. And he told Wall Street nothing was fundamentally going to change. And, you know, he meant that. Um, but just even like, you know, his campaign promises, like, you know, he was, he said he was going to cancel $50,000 of student loan debt and all this crap. And like, it's, that's, it's wildly popular. Like most people want him to cancel student debt and he still won't do it because, you know, he's in the pocket, he's in the pocket of wall street. So, um, yeah, I know. I don't like Joe Biden. I didn't vote for him. I voted green because um, I live in California. So, you know, it's a solid, solidly democratic state. So I really didn't have to, um, which, you know, thank God, because, you know, I'd rather chew glass and vote for Joe Biden. But um, I probably would have had to if I you know, lived in a, a swing state. But, you know, I don't think really anybody was excited about Biden or voting for him. Like people just voted for him because we didn't want Trump and we wanted to kind of you know, slow the slide, uh, into outright fascism. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I personally didn't never believe he was going to keep any of his campaign promises. I think that a lot of people don't realize that politicians don't have to do any of the shit they said they were going to do. Um, like there's no law, there's no rule that says that you have to keep your campaign promises so they could be, you know, promising us all ponies. And like, as soon as they get into the office, they can just turn right around and, you know, um, keep, keep screwing over people in favor of wall street. So, um, yeah, but I mean, his policies are just, he's always just kind of been a trash politician. His drug policies have always been trash. Like he had this weird obsession with party drugs in the nineties and he was trying to like criminalize raves and like, he wanted to put party promoters in prison and stuff. So, um, yeah. So if you're like a, if you're a, a Gen Z or there's a good chance that your millennial parents or your Gen X parents were, maybe targeted, <laughs> targeted by Joe Biden, um, trying to put them in jail for doing ecstasy in their, in their Jinko wide leg jeans. <clears throat> but, um, you know, and a lot of his policies, like from the, his drug policies from the eighties and nineties, just kind of tie back into his racism because like he did those two anti-drug, uh, abuse acts in the eighties, um, and created those sentencing disparities between, you know, crack and, and cocaine, um, and you know, those are very different demographics for who tends to use crack versus who tends to use cocaine, but it's the same drug. Right. So, you know, even you can, I think that happened in 86, 88, something like that. Like people living, some of your people that are listening to this podcast right now may not have even been born in 1986, but we all know, um, who the demographic is that, you know, has stereotypically does crack versus who stereotypically does cocaine. And, you know, I'm sure that Joe Biden being alive in 1986 knew that too. So, you know, people who, uh, you know, do crack cocaine, which is the same drug, um, which was, you know, oftentimes inner city black people get, God, what was it? Four times the sentencing of people who got caught with, you know, a lot of cocaine, which was typically, uh, rich white people, um, people snorting it in offices or, um, whatever. Wolf of wall street. That's a great example of pe the type of people who do cocaine. So yeah. Um, and he's just like, and he's, he's just, he fired a bunch of his staffers for admitting to smoking pot, um, this last year. And this isn't like 2021, you know, pot it's like, it's legal in most States It's legal in the district of Columbia, which is where he works and all his staffers work. 
I think it's just that he's really, he's been in politics for like 50 years and that's just too long. Um, the world has changed quite a bit in 50 years and he obviously has not changed with it. And I think that we just need to have like term limits or something for these, these politicians, these old guys, get them out of there. Well, I mean, also there's just the ongoing, uh, support that he's given to uh, Ukraine uh, and a lot of the factions there. I mean, for years now, uh, I mean, on the one hand, I mean, this is a regime that's empowered the, uh, what is it, the Azov Battalion, uh, which is an openly Nazi organization uh, that has been responsible for a litany of war crimes and the conflict over there. And then separately, I mean, Biden uh, has also gotten ongoing support uh, from elements of the, uh, the OUNB. And uh, indeed endorsed uh, the Captive Nations project uh, that they set up many years ago. I was uh, actually present for uh, this past year's uh, Captive Nations conference in uh, DB, uh, DC. I got to meet uh, Paula Dobriansky. I got to meet Evan oh, cool. Olner, uh, the uh, founder of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, yeah, it was it was wonderful being in the same room with a lot of these people and uh, yeah. hearing their uh, plans for the uh, coming conflicts with Russia and China and so forth. Uh, it was glorious. Um, but yeah, it's important to understand that the OUNB was an organization that uh, uh, was founded as a, a fascist group, uh, and uh, it stands for the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, uh, for those of you who are not aware, uh, during uh, the era prior to the Second World War, and it was uh, openly associated with the uh, Nazi regime for many years. It helped set up a wonderful organization known as the Anti-Bolshevik Bloc of Nations. Uh, it was kept alive in the post-war years uh, by elements of the CIA and the Pentagon. Uh, the ABN eventually set up a group called the World Anti-Communist League, which was instrumental in setting up many of the death squads uh, in Central America during the 1980s. And uh, the OUMB itself uh, still exists to this day. Uh, my good friend Moss Robinson has continued to tirelessly chronicle this uh, outfit and its ongoing influence on elements in uh, DC, uh, especially in the Biden administration. So again, I would like to emphasize this as a group an openly uh, Nazi group uh, that did tie back to literal Nazis uh, from back in the day. Uh, you know, there's no disputing that with its origins and it is still very much a thing. Uh, so this is the kind of uh, people that Biden has had no power, uh, no, excuse me, no problems empowering over the years. Uh, you know, this yeah. kind of thing needs to be emphasized and uh, this kind of insanity could actually spill over into a um, world war. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I didn't have a world war on my 2022 bingo card, but it might be. Yeah. Americans empowering Nazis aligning with Nazis. Go figure. <laughs> who would have thought it? Yeah. This could be the result <laughs> of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who would have thought it? We have such a love affair with fascism. It's just like rip. It's like, it's like that. Um, <laughs> the old trope in movies where you're like waiting for that the couple to get I mean, together. You know, the people that obviously like the will they won't they like the OUNB was like insane like I mean during the partisan wars with the Soviet Union like towards the end of the second world war they were like working with people who in Ukraine were going into like Jewish villages and killing everyone in there with farming tools so they could save on bullets okay this is who the OUNB is, okay? Yeah. 
they're like you know i mean and within i mean okay obviously any kind of like fascist or nazi group in that era was bad but like they were one of the groups that like the ss was even like dear god these guys are fucking hardcore you know what i'm saying yeah. like yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah absolutely yep yep america's love affair with fascism that's the let's just get it over just 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 fucking get it over with like at this point i'm just kidding please don't don't bring fascism to america but it but seems yeah at times yeah, it definitely seems the inevitable. rubicon was passed on that one many years ago <laughs> crossed <laughs> okay all right so let's talk some practical advice as we get into the home stretch here so your uh, viral tiktok about how capitalism negatively impacts mental health ended up on reddit andy work you want to talk a bit about the cult of the protestant work ethic now yeah sure um i mean the people in this country who own everything want you to work your life away making them richer um and that sucks because you only get like time is your most valuable resource. You only get one life. Um, and time is time is precious. And you could be spending that time, um, you know, doing things to make you happy, like, you know, hobbies, you know, playing music, making art, um, connecting with your friends or your partner, watching your kids grow up, you know, hanging out in nature, you know, whatever it is that you want to be doing. Um, and I personally, I don't think that there's any inherent value to work other than doing what we need to do to survive um, and keep society going. Like, you know, the hunter gatherers didn't have access to modern medicine or convenience, but they also only worked just like a few hours a day. The rest of the time was their own to just hang out with their families and whatnot. Um, and I think that, you know, there's this concept that life is short, but I think that that's because we're just constantly doing just meaningless, meaningless bullshit that we don't want to be doing. And, um, like imagine how imagine how long your life would seem if you were actually allowed to just be present for it and just to choose how it was that you wanted to spend it. Um, if you got to like write your own story and pursue that story instead of the one that has been just written for you by this society. Um, and I think that like, I think there's a, you know, a lot of conservatives like to argue, well, we can't have a UBI because everyone would just become lazy. Nobody would work. Um, and I think, you know, I think people are so burnt out on capitalism at this point, working 60 hours a week or trying to juggle three different gig jobs and stuff with no benefits just to like tread water for years, if not decades. I think, yeah, I think a lot of people would probably take a vacation. A lot of people would stay home for a month and play video. Um, and, you know, I think that, but even a person's favorite video game is going to get old after a month or two months or six months, you know, if you're playing it all day, every day. And I'd also think that human beings just naturally want to do things to contribute to their community. Um, because I think appreciation and recognition are also forms of capital. They're forms of social capital, um, and human or not capital currency, I should say rather, um, social currency. So, I think that human beings are always going to work. Um, if we weren't being held by capitalism, it's just we would be working on the things that actually interest us or that give us pleasure. So, um, you know, there's there's people people who write fanfic fan fiction now for no reason other than they enjoy it, like they know this. And people who do creative projects just for fun or build things just for fun, like you know, that's happening now under capitalism. Like people don't even have the time, and they're still doing this stuff, right? 
Um, so imagine what people would be doing if they did have the time. There's, there's plenty of people that just like to invent things just to see if they can. Um, engineers and whatnot, or people trying to discover new things, new forms of technology. Um, just speaking for myself, you know, at a low end, when I'm making my TikToks, I, you know, I use a video editing app. It takes me on the low end. It takes me like four hours to film it, to edit it, to put in the captions, all that stuff on the high end. I've spent probably 40 hours making a two minute TikTok, um, for, you know, just for fun. Um, cause I just enjoy video editing and I enjoy creative expression. And <laughs> I think that I'm really funny and I like to like make people laugh, um, and just kind of share my creativity with people. Um, so, you know, people are always going to want to do stuff. People are always going to want to contribute. People are always going to want to be a valued member of the community. Um, and it's not like we're all just going to sit around and play video games forever until everybody dies of starvation. Like <laughs> that's not, that would never happen. Um, but for right now, we're just all kind of stuck in this system that just like demands so much from us and it just gives so, so little back. So, um, so I think that, you know, rest is really important, um, to kind of just defy this like Protestant work ethic and, um, you know, just to enjoy your life as much as you can. And especially if you're a black person in this country, like rest is revolutionary because enslaved people, like, you know, were worked to death within, in the fields in like a matter of three to seven years frequently. So, you know, um, for many of our ancestors, that would have been their, their wildest dream is to, to rest, to be able to rest. All right. To conclude, let's talk about parallel systems. It's clear to most anyone with an iota of common sense that the United States and the West is collapsing right now, or at least the institutions that have upheld them. This process is probably only going to accelerate in the coming months and certainly years. So what are some of the parallel systems we should be building right now? Cool, yeah. Well, uh, just to make sure that your listeners know what parallel systems are, um, parallel systems are basically systems that are parallel <laughs> to current existing structures, right? So um, maybe uh, you get your food from the grocery store if you are in one system under capitalism and maybe you grow your own food if you are in another system outside, well, trying to be as outside of capitalism as you can be. Um, so yeah, so basically, um, parallel systems we need to be working on are our basic needs for sure. So, um, growing food, clean drinking water, um, healthcare. So there's some biohackers actually at the open insulin foundation that are working on low, low cost insulin right now that they want to just be able to give the recipe to everybody, um, to take the monopoly away from ph pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, that is, you know, obviously a step in the right direction, um, again, you know, the monopolies people, you know, Bill Gates owns all the farmland, you know, the companies are buying houses. So it's like in as much as we can kind of rest away these monopolies from people, um, you know, we should, we should be trying to work on that. Um, but another thing is, you know, protection, protecting your own communities. Um, cause I mean, when you say that these systems are falling apart, like you're, <laughs> You're not, you're not joking. Like I was reading um, a couple days ago that like the FBI can't even properly like target um, these like white supremacist terrorist guys that are running rampant through our society because there's so many white supremacist cops. 
<laughs> like that they can't like if they were to send a bulletin to the cops like notifying them of a person of interest and like they're trying to surveil this person or there's an investigation like the cops just like leak it to their buddies um they warn their like white supremacist buddies so like think think about like <laughs> think about how crazy that is like how dysfunctional our government is right now to where the people in the FBI who are like legit trying to do their job to like keep us safe from like these domestic terrorists, they can't even do their job because there's so many white supremacists <laughs> in the police force that are like working with the guys that they're trying to like, you know, catch. So, um, so yeah, I mean, Canada is preparing for like a, you know, America to be under a right-wing dictatorship by 2025 to 2030. And so, you know, in terms of protection, I'm a big believer in the Second Amendment for self-defense because, um, I mean, we saw how we saw how the cops sided with the armed white supremacist militias during the George Floyd uprising, you know, getting the OK sign and like warning them when people were about to be tear gassed and stuff and um, working, you know, with them in many cases. And um, and there's tons of like white supremacist cop gangs, like it's just here, even in Los Angeles, like in the um, California area, there's a lot of like, which is a pretty progressive part of the country. There's the Compton, Compton executioners. They're a white supremacist police gang. There's the Linwood Vikings. That's another white supremacist police gang. Um, so, you know, there's like, you know, there's white supremacist gangs in the cops. And I think that if, um, if you're a black or brown person in this country, you already know that you can't really rely on cops to protect you. But like, there's a pretty good chance that if this country falls to a white supremacist, probably Christian fascist dictatorship, then we're going to have to protect ourselves from like these guys. Right. So, um, so, and along with that, you know, community is so important. Like you can't just, you can't do this by yourself. So, like knowing who your neighbors are or finding people that have skills that you can, you know, trade skills with and having, having a group to just have your back. Um, that's, that's super important. Um, but I think, I mean, in terms of parallel systems, it's pretty like, it's obvious, like capitalism is just collapsing. Um, it has to, cause like, uh, you know, the income disparity now in this country is like larger than it was just like right before the French Revolution, you know, when they started lopping off people's heads and you can't, you also just can't maintain infinite growth and accumulation um, of capital on a finite planet. Um, you know, we've been a species, uh, modern man has existed for 300,000 years and just in 200 years, like we're already seeing the effects of like, you know, the heavy exploitation of this planet. It has to stop. We're ruining the planet for ourselves. Um, so basically whether or not capitalism collapses, like before, um, the ruling class like destroys all biodiversity and like steals all the resources and like jets off to their private Island to leave us all to like Mad Max each other for like the scraps or like after that happens. Um, like that's just basically what we're determining right now is if capitalism is going to have happen, capitalism is going to collapse before that happens or after. So, um, like, I think, you know, in terms of parallel systems, the thing that we most need to concentrate on is like the expanding the limits of our own imagination. Um, so I think it was Mark Fisher who wrote Capitalist Realism, who said something like it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Right. And for a lot of people, I think that's true. Like we we can't we can't really imagine any other possibilities, in part because we're not you know, we're not showing that we're all propagandized by the media and whatnot. Um, to into believe into believing that capitalism is like the only way, um, but 
uh, yeah, I mean, like, like reimagining entire systems, like, for example, um, like, under this current structure that we live under, it's not really, like, the systems that are, exist now, currently, they don't serve us, and they're, they're not ever really going to serve us. They, they weren't designed to serve us, really. It's not the government, and it's not capitalism's job to, like, serve us. It's, it's job to, like, serve itself and to perpetuate itself, um, and per to perpetuate the existing, like, hierarchical power structure. Um, so like, for example, like compare the treatment of Kyle Rittenhouse to the to the treatment of like Michael, um, Reinhold. Um, so like on one case, you have a 17 year old kid who like crosses state lines with a weapon that he wasn't old enough to have supposedly to like, you know, protect property that wasn't his, um, and, you know, ends up killing two people and maiming a third person. So, you know, and like, you can hear the video of him, um, a few days before that happened, like standing in front of a CVS with his friend. And he was saying that he, he wished he had his AR so that he could be shooting at people that were coming out of the CVS. So like, it's pretty clear, like where his head was at, right. When he went to that black lives matter protest, he was spoiling for a fight basically. And then on the other hand, we have Michael Ron, uh, who was also at a BLM protest in Portland, except on the side of BLM. And, you know, he shot and killed that right-wing Patriot prayer guy. Um, and for people who don't know Patriot prayer, it's, it's a right-wing, you know, fashy group. Like they wear shirts that say things like Pinochet was right. And they wear shirts that say like right-wing death squads and stuff, um, things like that. So, you know, these guys, the Patriot prayer guys, they're known for going to protests as counter protests, just for violence. Like for, you know, they're known for spraying protesters with bear mace and like shooting people in the face with like paintball guns and, you know, attacking people physically, like trying to beat people up. They want to beat up all these left leftist protesters. So in this case, you know, uh, Rhino, he was like, he's with his friend, he's at a protest. Somebody who's a known violent attacker <laughs> is like running up to him and his friend and, you know, he shot him and he killed him. And like, in that case, like, I guess his choices, he, he didn't have to do that. He could have run and he could have taken the chance of getting shot in the back or get a beer bottle thrown at the back of his head or something. Or I guess he could have stood there and just like, let whatever was going to happen, happen. Like whether that's him and his friend getting stabbed or shot or maced or whatever. Um, but like the difference is, you know, of course that Rittenhouse got acquitted for going and seeking violence. Um, and now he's on a speaking tour. And Rhinel was like gunned down by cops in his driveway. Um, so, you know, another example would be like Jessica uh, uh, Resniak. I'm not sure if I'm saying her last name, Resni, Resnisek, but um, she was an environmental activist. And she was recently this summer, she was given eight years in prison for dismantling this uh, construction equipment that was um, being used to build the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, so, you know, they basically, they wanted to make an example out of her. Um, she didn't hurt anybody, um, you know, and BP can spill, can spill 4 million barrels of oil into the Gulf of Mexico, you know, um, or oil and gas companies can heat up the whole planet and basically like end life on earth as we know it, but don't try to stop them. Don't, don't damage some equipment that's building the pipeline that's going to continue to do this, right? Um, so like any kind of like vigilante, like violence, you know, or property destruction, anything that like supports these existive, um, these existing like oppressive power structures is always going to be like forgiven by those power structures, right? Whereas uh, vigil vigilante violence or property destruction that like goes against those power um, structures are always is always going to be like aggressively and violently suppressed.
Um, so like, you know, in order to like kind of move through what we're about to go through with like the death of, you know, capitalism and um, the shifting of our society in these radical ways, we have to be willing to kind of like reimagine these systems, right? Because it's these systems that are holding all of us in place in these ways. Um, we have to reimagine forms of justice, like restorative justice. Um, we have to reimagine hierarchies, um, you know, wherein traditionally it's always been white, straight men, um, rich men, you know, um, this country was founded for straight, white, rich men um, who have been at the very top of that hierarchy. And we have to kind of like reimagine, like, what would it look like if there weren't any hierarchies, right? I think a lot of people are scared. You know, there's this idea in the United States about the great replacement where, which is, it's a, that's a Nazi term, you know, basically, but it basically means that white people are afraid of being displaced by brown, black and brown people um, and becoming the minority. And, you know, because a lot of white people can't really conceptualize of races just being equal. <laughs> Like they can't conceptualize of like not being treated like shit, like the same way that they have historically treated all these other minorities. Right. Um, and, you know, as long as we're caught in that game of like who's on top, like we're all on the bottom, basically. Um, so, yeah, there has to kind of be a reimagining of like how to exist on this planet um, with the planet and with each other. Um, yeah. Anyways, yeah. Res response for that. No, that was great. Um, and one thing too, you know, I mean, that also I think needs to be put in perspective um, is just the role that the US military has played in perpetuating a lot of this too, because I mean, uh, the alliance, I mean, with the cops, I mean, has talked about a lot, but I mean, this uh, with the military is also, I mean, quite, I think, a disturbing aspect. And especially when you get into a lot of the, uh, the special operations forces, cultures, uh, this is actually from The Beast Reawakens by Martin Lee, uh, Martin A. Lee, which is a great work. Uh, but anyway, uh, headquartered in Birmingham, Alabama, the U.S. Army's 20th Special Forces Group sought out members of the Ku Klux Klan and instructed them to gather information on civil rights demonstrators. In return for paramilitary training at the farm in Coleman, Alabama, Klansmen soon sought the 20th Intelligence Network, whose information was passed on to the Pentagon. The Memphis Commercial Appeal reported years later, and this was also confirmed by William Pepper, who was the attorney for the family of Martin Luther King Jr. He was able to track down several members who had worked for them for the 20th and had uh, confirmed that they did use quite a bit of uh, white supremacist groups in the 60s to keep track on civil rights uh, demonstrators, and this practice did not end then. Um, my friend Ed Berger uh, did a service to humanity by digging up some declassified um, FBI files on the Civil Material Assistance Group, which uh, was again another far-right paramilitary kind of militia network involved in supplying the Contras uh, during the 1980s. And uh, it seems we can't entirely tell because the documents are heavily censored, but it is strongly implied that uh, the 20th uh, Special Forces Group again had some kind of relationship with this group. And uh, when you look at a lot of the stuff uh, that was going on, you know, with QAnon and some of these other 
more contemporary right-wing movements, you know, you, again, you see a strong presence of people based out of Fort Bragg showing up in a lot of this, uh, which, you know, for those of you unfamiliar, uh, that is the home of uh, the uh, Joint Special Operations Command. It's also where the Delta Force and a lot of the other elite groups are uh, headquartered and trained uh, for that matter. And also, incidentally, it is um, where the Psychological Warfare School is headquartered. And uh, that's another interesting point that uh, is not emphasized nearly enough. Psychological warfare is not an intelligence function by and large in the military. It is a, uh, it falls under the purview of special operations and uh, is largely conducted in the army, especially through Fort Bragg and uh, elements of the special operations forces. So that's another big element of all of this. But anyway, regardless, uh, you know, this has been going on for a lot of years. And again, you know, based on these uh, declassified FBI files that Ed dug up, the great Ed Berger. Uh, this was potentially a part of, um, you know, our continuity of the 20th was involved potentially in a part of our continuity of government operations. If, uh, you know, the civilian government was decapitated, this would have been one of the units because they were actually a National Guard unit and designated to operate domestically uh, that would be used to restore order. So, Potentially, these were the kind of assets that they were looking to to restore order in the uh, the event of a breakdown of society. And, um, you know, based on, you know, what you can look at uh, some of the networks, I mean, backing Trump and I mean, who had probably helped put this movement together. And there's a strong likelihood that this is still ongoing. And uh, based on where we're heading, that is uh, probably not a good thing. No, sure isn't. Scary times, man. Absolutely. Well, on that note, we will, I guess, sign off for now. Pierce, it was fantastic having you on here. I'll have to have you yes. back again sometime. Thank you. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Stephen. Yes, absolutely. And you as well. And I urge you guys to check out more of Pierce's work. It is just absolutely outstanding. You can find her, hopefully on TikTok, back at her regular abode at piercetherapy.com. And remember, Pierce's name is spelled P-E-A-R-C-E, not P-I-E-R-C-E. It's with an A, guys. Okay, so for the TikTok page, the main one, it is Pierce Therapy. That's P-E-A-R-C-E, therapy, all one word, dot com. Now, in case that that somehow mysteriously disappears, there is a backup account that is tiktok.com backslash at not not Pierce Therapy. The last part is all one word. That is not N-O-T times two, not not Pierce, P-E-A-R-C-E therapy. Okay, guys. And also you can find Pierce on Instagram at Pierce Therapy. So keep those links in mind and consider checking them out. Uh, you know, again, her stuff is first rate, guys. Please do so. All right. Well, on that note, we will sign off. Uh, good night and good luck to you all.